Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in Luke 15 today. So you can turn, or if you have a digital copy of scripture, you can tap your way to Luke chapter 15 as we study this parable from Jesus that, um, man, you know, David talked about it this week as showing the genius of Jesus. And I, I appreciate that because Jesus being God, we don't always talk about that. It's always like, well, yeah, of course. But if you'll examine what he said and the uniqueness of it, if you'll, if you'll try to penetrate into some of the wisdom that he's given through the word that he's taught, um, I, I hope that you don't go, of course. <laughs> I, I hope that there will be a moment where you realize sort of the, the majesty of it. And, you know, Easter, we got all these people coming. One of our partner churches, and I, I didn't do like a good survey of all of our friends, you know, in different parts of the country, but one of our partner churches, the one Nick uh, person, if you remember him, he came and preached for us. Over Easter, they had 11,000 people. Ah, yeah, that's pretty crazy. And we had 369, which I'm over the moon about, but it's not 11,000. But, but I, I started last week talking about how, you know, the churches are kind of getting less and less full. And I think there's something to be said about that, and there's something to be thought of about that. But... Uh, the Lord isn't done working. Uh, you know, like the, the teaching that Jesus has, the gospel that he's presented is effective. And as we go through the teaching that he's got for us and the genius of that teaching, I want to address both of those things. I want to address what would be so attractive that crowds would come to hear it. And what could be so poisonous that some who are already standing there would become angry at the crowds. Take a second to process that. There is something about Jesus that is so good. And let's be clear, we've all rejected the Lord. That's kind of the idea of the gospel, that we need somebody to save us, that we are separated from God and need to be put back into relationship with Him. But, but there is something so attractive in the gospel that many would respond but there's also something poisonous in the people who consider themselves righteous, meaning they're probably already in the churches, that make those crowds get turned away. If we get this right, if we understand Jesus' teaching rightly, then we will have the answer to both of those things. What would be so attractive that many would come? And how to find and address what is so poisonous that we might choke the people who do come. That we might make it difficult for people to hear and respond to the words of life that Jesus gave. Listen to it. It says, so Luke chapter 15 in verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners are all drawing near to Jesus. They want to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you see both groups? Last week we talked about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wants to get to Jesus. Why can't he? Because the crowd of people hate Zacchaeus. Get out of here, get out of here. tax collector. Get this short little dude. Get out of here. Keeping him away from the words of life. And clearly not receiving those words themselves, because they grumble in the same way as the Pharisees and the scribes, saying, 
He eats with, with these tax, he receives these tax collectors and he eats with them. Do, do you see there's two things here? We need the solution to both, and Jesus responds, and he responds to those tax collectors and scribes. So the teaching we're going to read today has actually got those people in mind. Yeah, the, the tax collectors, the sinners, they're standing there, but the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who are good at the law, Pharisees would have memorized massive portions of what for us is the Old Testament. They added laws to the laws of Moses to make sure that they wouldn't come even close to disobeying Mosaic law. The scribes were professional, like almost like lawyers. It was their job to study the law in its minutiae, to ponder anything that seemed interesting or difficult and come up with big books to write about, how they could understand what are the different theories on. These people were supremely impressive, and yet mm, people start responding to the gospel. People start responding to Jesus. Oh my gosh, here we have this putting back together of Adam, Eve, and God, and they get in the way. They insert themselves and say, this can't happen. The, the light of the world can't be that bright if, he's not, if he can't see the fact that the people he's attracting are tax collectors and sinners. And to that poison, Jesus speaks. And he speaks a couple of different gospel or a couple of different parables. We're going to skip over the first two and save those for later in our series. But today we're going to jump down to the kind of, I don't know, headline. It's the longest of the parables in this chapter. So, I mean, in some ways it's kind of the headline. It's, it's in the third place or the last place, the place of honor. We're, we're going to consider it today. And I want you to see it because I think if you'll spend time with this passage, if you'll let this story get in your heart and in your head, in your imagination but then also start to penetrate down into who you are, then we can start to be a people that embody what is the true gospel. And it can be a people that start to reject, that start to suck that poison out of ourselves that makes us so difficult for people to come to Jesus like through us, around us, by means of us. This is what it says in, in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching to these groups and he tells them these parables, and he gets to this parable in verse 11 and says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, I, I don't know immediately if you understand just how uh, offensive that is, but it's scandalous. Can you imagine in today's society, where we have so little regard for parents, <laughs> so little regard for family structures, so much antipathy towards the patriarchy or, you know, whatever you want to use these phrases to mean. Can you imagine going to your own parents and saying, listen, when you die, we know it's going to happen. You know, you don't look as good as you used to. When you die, that property, you know, it's going to go somewhere. Why don't we pretend you're already dead? You take that property that you might have used, you know, for healthcare later in life or whatever, and give it to me now, tax-free. And I'll go ahead and take it, and then we don't have to talk to each other anymore. I can just go ahead and have the thing that I want from you, and I can reject all the stuff I don't care about, like Christmas cards, you know? Like, we can just be done with each other, but I can have what I want, which is, you know, cars and, and property and other stuff. Do you see how that's offensive? <laughs> Uh, ha, 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 can you imagine your child saying that to you? That would be death. Oh, my gosh. 
It's scandalous. It's also actually dangerous because while our culture can still understand the scandal of it, we don't understand, you know, what it meant to be a part of a family and what that family meant when they actually had respect for people that were above them. We don't have those things anymore. God help us. But they did. And under the Mosaic law, it was actually dangerous. You read Deuteronomy 21, it makes it clear. Uh, you could actually kill your kid for disobedience. Yeah. Proverbs 18, 19. So like eventually that teaching had made its way through Israel to the point where Proverbs 19 was kind of like helping to mitigate it a little bit. It said, discipline your son. Listen, there's hope. Don't set your heart on putting him to death. <laughs> I mean, you guys have read that proverb, I'm sure. When you did, did you go like, yeah, you know what? You're right. <laughs> Sweetheart, let's stay the execution. Uh, But something more surprising than an execution happens. In the second part of verse 12, it says, and he divided his property between them. The father did it. There's a lot to unpack there, but we need a lot more context. So we're going to keep going and, and kind of think through all this. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him out to the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the slop, the pods that the pigs are eating. And nobody gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but maybe you could treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, we use the word prodigal to describe this parable. We talk about it as the prodigal son, and that word is not one that we ever use except for describing this parable. But the word actually means to someone who spends everything. And that's why this guy got that title, because he took what he got from his father. He went to a distant land and he spent all of it. He didn't parcel it out and assume he's going to live to be 75 and try to make it to 75. He took all of it and spent all of it. He was prodigal in the way that he used those resources. He spent everything. And in this far country, he spent it to indulge in reckless living. Now, if you were with us last week at Easter, we talked about how Jesus is describing in this parable and at many places in his teaching, like Zacchaeus and other places, which we'll talk about throughout this series, that there are ways that we try to get what we think will be it. And by it, I mean what we think will really satisfy us. What will really be security for us, safety for us. What will, will really be something that gives us uh, identity, significance. Those three S's, security, satisfaction, and significance. Those are ways of kind of cutting apart what you consider to be it. The thing that your life needs. And the way that we try to get it throughout human history, and according to Jesus, in two different ways, has been, like this younger son, to go after what we might call self-discovery. The idea is, I'm just going to take whatever my urges are and assume that they're right, and I'm going to feed them everything I can. And maybe by pursuing what I already want, what's inside me, I will get it. I'll get satisfaction. I'll get security. I'll get significance. I'll, I'll become what I hope to eventually be. I'll, I'll finally be full. 
And then we talk about the other way, and it's going to be the thing that we'll talk about later in the parable, but it's the idea that uh, the, the crowd last week, the Pharisees and the scribes this week, the, the older brother that we're going to talk about momentarily, they would say, no, 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 no. The way to actually get it is to be obedient, not disobedient. What we call, uh, clunkily have called moral uh, conformity. I, I think self-righteousness is like a Bible word for it. The idea that you're going to make yourself good, that you're going to make yourself righteous, and in being goodness itself and, and making yourself holy, you're going to then have the ability to, to bring about what you want in the world, that God will owe you. And because he owes you and because he's God and because you're so phenomenal, he's going to give you it, that thing, the thing that will make you feel it, significant, secure, satisfied. The younger son, he goes about it through what we call, again, this, this idea of self-discovery. He goes about it by indulging the things that he can find as urges within himself. He goes about it, and it says he spends all this reckless money in, in uh, he spends all this money in reckless living. Later, the older son talks about it as, as prostitutes. I mean, I don't know what all he was doing in this party, but just imagine taking whatever your current sort of pleasures are, your, your current desires are, and somebody just gives you the check. Like you're just in Vegas, you've got the money, nobody's watching. What happens next? For this guy, he went after things that a lot of people pursue. He went after pleasure. But if we just say pleasure, I think we're being a little naive about what that actually looks like. Yeah, I mean, we just want pleasure. You know, a bigger burger, another drink, whatever. There's pleasure. But what you're pursuing as you go about that has other pieces to it. There's also a power or a greatness to it. Like you want to be the person rolling the dice while everybody around you is cheering. Why? There's a desire to be the guy at the center of attention. You know, like there's a desire to be the guy that everybody's slapping on the back rather than just the guy who's rolling the dice. Do you see? I think if you understand your heart, you understand that, that what lust involves is not just pleasure. It involves a lot of stuff. You talk to people that are helping other people with pornography addiction. They're not just talking about impulse control, are they? There's a lot that goes into it. If you understand the heart of a person that's seeking those things, you understand that that person is seeking much more than just pleasure. You know, oftentimes they're seeking a great deal of, of control. And I want to bring this up and highlight it because it's going to make its way through the whole of this thing. And I think it makes its way through the whole of Jesus' teaching and the whole of Scripture. The idea of prideful control. The son says, give me what's mine. Then he goes into another country where he doesn't have any, any tradition. He doesn't have any name to worry about. He doesn't have any older lady neighbor that's raising her eyebrow at him. He's in a different country, and he uses those funds to do what he wants. So it's not just about the individual things that he does or buys. It's about using his money his way to build himself up. It's prideful control. I don't, I, nobody's probably read Paradise Lost, or maybe you had to and you hated it, but there's this really long poem by a guy named John Milton, and it's actually phenomenal, but it's, it's called Paradise Lost. And in it, he imagines paradise and imagines paradise being lost, Adam and Eve. But, but beforehand, he imagines a little bit of the, the fall of Satan. And as Satan and his people, they land in hell, 
they wake up and then they start a council. They start figuring out what they're going to do next. And one of the big things that Satan uses to kind of rally the troops and encourage everybody in hell is to say, hey, listen, I know we're not in heaven anymore, but it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. This is one of the most insightful lines that Milton wrote in the thousands of lines of that poem. I want you to understand why it matters when you sin against God. They're not these little picadillos. It's you indulging the desire to reign, to rule, to have control over you and your stuff and your life. And that desire for control becomes so central that you'll give up everything else to maintain it. The demonic voice says, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. The rational voice goes, no, I would rather be a doorman in the temple of the Lord than to spend a thousand days anywhere else, over a day in your courts. But this guy, this kid, he didn't get it. He goes after these things that he thinks are going to give him this kind of love, this kind of it, this kind of grace. And of course, they all break him. Every idol eventually breaks its followers. So an essential truth of Scripture is that you become like what you worship, what you consider to give you that satisfaction, that security, and that significance. You're going to model yourself after it because you love it. But if it's a deaf, dumb idol, then you start to become deaf and dumb. If it's a hollow, blind idol, you start to get hollowed out. You become brittle like the idols that you serve. You become small like the idols that you serve. We don't have time to talk on everything, but I want you to see some of the genius of what Jesus is bringing out and that he's bringing all of these themes in in such a quick package. These things in themselves are empty, and this guy is pursuing it, and he is emptying himself out through it. And eventually, of course, the money just runs out. God gives him the grace to run out of money. And then he gives him the grace of a famine that force him to look up from these addictions towards something else. In looking towards something else, he makes a plan. He makes the same kind of plan that our heart would make. He says, I'll try to work it off. You know, I can't go back as a son. I've sinned against him and God. I mean, that's not even on the table. But maybe I can work. And if I work, maybe he'll feed me. And I can, I can start paying off what I did to him. What I did to him was take his stuff. So if I go work, maybe I can contribute more to his stuff. He doesn't get it still. He has this idea that we all have, which is like, that that's how things work. That's what the real value is. And he can somehow grab that value, Mac, or, or start to pay that value off. It's the only economy that his heart understands. But look at what happens in verse 20. So he gets up and he comes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, but, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. 
bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they begin to celebrate. Did you see it? That's the gospel. That's it. (laughs) This is the smelling salt of the world. This is the thing that people are going to wake up to and and want. This is 11,000 people. Yeah, no, again, uh, you know, who knows what the numbers are going to be. But I'm saying, like, this is what the tax collectors and the sinners are coming, crowding together to hear about. The, the guy stumbles in. He's the son of disobedience. And instead of being killed by his father, the father who allowed him to experience consequences in this difficult, dark world, allowed him to, like, go for it. He, he comes up, and he comes up, Small, misguided, pathetic, dirty, and he's got this hopeless plan. And while he's still a far way off, his father sees him and runs to him. So in that prodigal God book, Keller, he emphasizes in this point that a patriarch back then would never pick up his robe and run. Unless there's like a battle coming, you know, like unless the tsunami is rising, unless the like Midianites are riding in on their camels, like unless something is happening that would be life or death, the patriarch would maintain his wisdom. He would maintain his decorum, but not this patriarch. On seeing that son coming, so great was his love that he picks up, he picks up his robes and he runs, <laughs> and he runs and he grabs him. He saw him and he felt compassion. His father's heart was warm. Now, in the parable, I hope that you're, you know, able to start making connections. The father is God in this parable. The sons represent us, but the father is representing God in this parable. And this isn't Jesus just coming up with some crazy thing that he thinks will be really attractive to a new group of people. He doesn't take what God has said up to that point and like twist it. Like he, he's saying something that scripture has always said about God. Prove it? Okay. Psalm 103, verses 2 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's what we just saw happen in Luke 15. We talked about Micah 7 recently. Listen to this again. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Do you see the Jesus that we're talking about? Do you see the God, the hug that we're talking about? Listen, he, he loves the Son, and His love remakes the Son. I talked about how an idol makes you like itself. It becomes, you become hollow like the idol. You become deaf and blind and dumb like the idol. Jesus comes that they may have life and have it to the full. When Jesus comes and He's doing His ministry... He's making blind people see. He's making deaf people hear. He's making dumb people speak. He's making crippled people walk, leap like a deer. Why? Because that's what he's come to do. That's what the love of God has come to do. It's come to remake you, turn you into something totally full, totally new, totally different, to break you off of these desires that are going to just corrupt you. 
and give you a new set of desires, the ones that you were supposed to have from the beginning. I mean, all throughout the scripture, he talks about how he's going to write his law on our hearts instead of tablets of stone that are going to crush us. He writes them on our hearts, on our flesh. So they become inside us and they start to be the things that we do. It becomes who we are. We start to become like him. They become remade. And how do we see that in the parable? I mean, you see it not just through the hug and not just through the declaration, but he literally covers the sun in himself. He makes the sun look like himself. He calls for the best robe. Who had the best robe in the closet? The patriarch. The father had the best robe. So when he's calling for his best robe, he's asking for his own robe to be put on this kid. The ring. Rings are significant. They signify things. Not all of them. I know. So a lot of you have rings all over the place. I can't imagine what they all mean. I just have one, and it means I'm married. So it's very significant to me. But rings in ancient times were often signet rings. They were identifiers. What is this idea of the ring and the robe? He's saying all the way back, but he's also saying what his love does. His love transforms this kid. And we see it, we see it, we see it. We see it not only in his love, we see it not only in this change of outfit, but we see it in the party that's about to happen. When he says to kill the fatted calf, he's talking about something huge. So big that we see the other son react. So look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, when the father said to kill the fatted calf, he was talking in a culture that didn't eat a lot of meat. That to kill an animal like that wasn't something you did because it was Friday. It was something that you did for a like once in a seven or eight year kind of a party. A big wedding, uh, a, a big, I don't know. I mean, I don't know of other things that would have taken place in those times that would have had this kind of sacrifice to take that amount of wealth and blow it all on one party. But that's what happens. And as they do that, the whole community comes in to celebrate. The whole community now restoring this son, his identity with the father, his identity with the community. There's so much here, the genius of Jesus. But it's confronted, it's confronted by this older son. Verse 26, he says, the older son calls one of the servants, says, what do these things mean? And the servant says, your brother's come home. Your father's killed the fatted calf because he has received back his son safe and sound. But the older brother, see the poison, see the choke, see the rejection of the people that are coming to Jesus. The older brother was angry. And he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, and yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fatted calf for him? The older son said to the father, I'm sorry, the father said to the son, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Why is the brother angry? The brother's angry because he has the same refusal of the father's love as the younger son. 
Now, over the rest of this series, because this parable is taught to the Pharisees, because a lot of Jesus' teaching especially goes into Jerusalem, these last, it's several chapters per gospel, but it's the last couple of days of Jesus' life, that teaching is very incisive. It's very direct toward the Pharisees. We're going to spend a lot of time on it, so we're not going to dig into it too much today. But just for a moment, see the parallel. The younger son despises the father, and so he takes what he can and just leaves. The older son, apparently, despises the father, even though he stays. So what do they have in common? Both of them are totally blind to the love of the father for them. The younger son gets to experience it because he goes in totally prodigals. He goes all the way out and then comes back and receives this kind of gospel acceptance and love. But the older son never has to repent to the community. Until this moment, I'm not sure that he felt like he even had to repent to the father. And yet his heart is just as hollow. His rejection just as full. Do you see the danger of being the older, older kid? Okay, in our, our last couple of minutes, just let's just focus on the father. One from this parable, Jesus is telling us, one, that the father is it. <laughs> he is life. Like, he is that security, satisfaction, significance that you're looking for. He's right. He is what you are hoping to have. You might have younger brother lifestyle, older brother lifestyle, more likely, big mix. You might be trying to find your security, satisfaction, significance through hard work or through wild living. I don't know. This is Jesus' teaching. He gives an either or. You probably fit into one or both. And yet, what he is making very clear in this passage is that the love that the God has for these people is what they really need. It's certainly the most beautiful thing in the passage. The older son seems dried up and wicked and horrible. The younger son seems splayed out. He's poured out. It talks about, like, in the Proverbs, a man without uh, self-control is like a city without walls. It talks about the man who goes after adultery like a man whose water is just spilled out all over the street instead of being kept in a place where it can be used and clean. The older son has been hardened to a point. The younger son has been dissipated to a puddle. And yet both of them can receive through this Lord, through this grace, a love that will totally remake them. He's right. The father's right. And the father is pursuing you. Oh, he wants you. His eyes scan the horizon like a sea captain. Oh, he's hoping. He's hoping. He heard about the famine in that, that wild country. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. And as soon as he can see him, he runs to the younger son. And when the older son is ready to finally reject the father, the father leaves the party to go out to the older son. He pursues the older son. What do we know about Jesus? Jesus, being God, comes from heaven to pursue you. That is the specific of the gospel. In Philippians 2, it says, God, uh, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't count a quality of God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Think about that father picking up his robes and running to go get that son. He empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in a human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you understand what he does for you, the love that he has for you? 
we got a whole sermon that's going to focus on just that coming up. But, but just start to understand the, that, that that picture of the Father running for the Son is the picture that Jesus has painted in His running for you. It's real. It's available. Oh, man, and He is relational. He's right. He's pursuing you, and He's loving. Yeah, this God is not pursuing these guys to get His stuff back. This father is not hoping to reform the sons so that they'll be more productive and create a bigger estate for him. Now, Kelly makes a big point out of the, the word that is used for land or estate that the father takes and breaks up in order to give an inheritance to the younger son is the word bios. Now, there's other words in Greek they could have used, but they used that word, the word that comes from, our, we use the word to mean life, biology, B-I-O, biology, bios. Because what he's doing is he's tearing himself apart. He's tearing himself apart in order to to try and serve his son in some way. And and he's definitely torn apart as the son leaves. Listen, the Lord has the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your resources. We are not sharing the gospel with you in the hopes that you will bring your glorious self in order to make our body more efficient and lovely. He wants you just for you. The father's torn up, not because he loses resources, but because he loses you. Uh, Sometime we're going to preach on Hosea. When we do, I'm going to have to define prostitutes, so maybe don't bring your kids to that series. But when that prophet lived his life, he did it, he enacted it to show how God loves you. He doesn't want you. He doesn't need you. He loves you. He's not a parasite taking from you. So, oh, I'm not going to get 10% of that guy's 30000 a year. No. He wants you. Oh, he wants you. So do you want him? Do you love him? That's the question. That's the only question. Do you love him? Christians, are you pursuing him? It's possible that you're poisoned in the middle of the church, keeping people away from the gospel. It's possible. How do we fix it? How do we know? Ask that question. Do you love him? Maybe be for a little bit before you do. Maybe pray rather than just serve. And don't pray as a way to prove your godliness. Just be with the Lord. Do you relate to him? Do you love him? Do you obey him because you love him? Do you sing to him? Do you seek quiet moments with the Lord like Jesus did? And if you're not a Christian and you're just trying to understand this stuff, please understand that what we're offering you, the transformation that we're trying to show you, is the only way to life and health. We're going to keep making the case that the self-discovery route and the self-righteous route can't work. As we work it out, I hope you'll keep coming back and see this has huge implications for your marriage, for your parenting, for your own satisfaction in life. But really for your eternity, for that huge problem of what you're going to do about death. So let's, let's pray now, and as we pray, I just want you to ask those questions about yourself. Do you love Him? Lord God and Heavenly Father, the love that you've displayed through this parable um, is so far overdone, overmatched by what you actually showed us in your love for us. Lord, this parable and that father running out to hug a dirty son 
is nothing compared to you being stretched out and becoming dirty yourself by being cursed and hung on a tree. That our sin might be paid for and that you might be able to bring us back to yourself, not as hired servants, but as sons and daughters. Lord, will you help us to see that love so that we can react to it, that we can react in faith and say, Lord, will you please make me one of your children? Just to walk up with with nothing in our hands and trust you to cover our sin with your holiness, cover our dirty rags with your perfect robe. For the believers here, Father, will you please teach us repentance so that we have hearts that desire the tax collector and the sinner to come and know you? that choose to sit at their feet and learn what it is to be broken before holy God, to relinquish our proud control. There's so much to talk about, Father. I pray that you would give us the grace to come back again and again through this series and see the gospel that you've taught us. And as we see it, to be transformed and to have life. We love you, sir. pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.